Oil companies rightly spend huge sums of money on 3D seismic acquisition in order to learn of the subsurface prior to drilling. Why would anyone want to drill blind? And so if people will just look at their reflection seismic data, the data will speak for itself. Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. For this episode, I speak with Eloise Lynn on her upcoming North American Honorary Lecturer Tour. Eloise and I discuss Leon Thompson's famous deck of cars from SEG 1986, the controversy surrounding her recent published paper, how anisotropy can be understood by all geophysicists, what would happen if azimuthal PP seismic measurements reached its full potential, and more. This interview is not to be missed. Eloise Lynn is a geophysical consultant and instructor with PetroSkills and Nautilus World. Her storied career includes work with Texaco, Amico, and BP, among others. She specializes in the use of 3D multi-azimuth and or multi-component data to obtain structure, lithology, porosity, pore fluids, and aligned porosity. She is a member of SEG, EAGE, the Geophysical Society of Houston, AAPG, and SPE. And this just touches the surface of her contributions to geophysics. For Eloise's full biography and links to her upcoming tour, read the show notes for this episode on your phone or at seg.org slash podcast. Now for our conversation. So to get started, could you please provide a brief overview of your upcoming honorary lecture tour? The tour is currently 17 cities and 20 deliveries. I'll be visiting both uh, cities in the United States and in Canada. The SEG staff has provided such excellent guidance and administration of the tour. Thank you and kudos to the staff. The SEG has lined up both universities and professional societies to host this one-hour talk. To begin with, I'll be going on a Montana, Denver, Colorado School of Mines leg in September, followed in late October with a Pittsburgh through Canada leg, and then um, late November, will bring me to the Potomac, Washington, D.C. area, Maryland, then Oklahoma, Kansas, and Tennessee. Then in December, I'll wrap up with a, a Texas tour. Why is ignoring azimuthal seismic information in today's scientific world inexcusable? Um, there are four reasons. I'll fly over the four reasons, and then if you have any questions, we can dive down. But the first one is, is very um, astonishing to me that today in 2019, I'm saying that the azimuthal seismic information, when properly handled, will give you better images. I mean, that you simply get a better stack, better, and it's better because we're allowing the velocity that we use to migrate with to vary by the angle of incidence, that's the layer anisotropy, and then we allow it to vary with the azimuth of the source to receiver. That's the stress or the fracture anisotropy. So this gives us an improved capacity to focus reflection energy because we can use the correct imaging velocity. So in the old days, I would have given you the second reason, which was that the, for the last 25 years, geophysicists have been publishing the geologic information extracted from azimuthal seismic with calibration data. 
specifically the institute stress governs the travel times, and then the natural fractures are best seen with the amplitude. At least that's where I am right now today. But the number one reason to use azimuthal seismic information is that you get a better image. So then continuing on with number three reason, the computer hardware and software today is bigger, better, faster, and we can analyze and view and process these azimuthal seismic measurements, and it takes less time and takes less money. Also, the fourth reason is that we have bigger, larger, better acquisition. We're collecting more traces in the field. We have higher fold. We get better signal to noise through processing. And there's at least four reasons that azimuthal seismic is really gaining traction and is widely acknowledged to be useful and important. And to act as though it doesn't exist is sort of inexcusable in my book. So in an overview of your lecture, you're going to walk us through the past, present, and future. It's in the, in the title of your tour. And I, I want to touch briefly on, on each of those components there. Your past exploration starts at SEG's annual meeting in 1986 through the paper you served as lead through the time where you served as lead author in 1995 of a paper. What made these particular two points in time so essential to understanding azimuthal PP seismic measurements? Yes, um, I, I selected those two dates, 1986 and 1995, as pretty pivotal points in, in my experience. The 1986 was the uh, annual meeting in Houston, and um, there was a session on, on anisotropy. Uh, and it was actually seismic nine azimuthal anisotropy colon shear wave birefringence. I was session chair, and then Dr. Ram Sriram of Shell Development Company was my co-chair. And in this session, there were five papers presented by the Amico team. Uh, Leon Thompson presented his theoretical paper with the now famous deck of cards. That's the deck of business cards to show how the shear modulus can vary by azimuth when there's an advancing shear wave front. The medium basically has one set of vertical aligned fractures that those are the business cards. So they're compliant when you move your hand across the cards, you know, perpendicular to the cards. But if you move your hand parallel the cards, they're quite stiff. So the reflection data set was SS reflection data from Appalachia, the fold and thrust belt. I presented that paper and Leon was my co-author. We measured shear wave by refringence in oil company seismic. So that was pretty, a, that was the first time that this was ever presented or announced, or it was the beginning of the azimuthal anisotropy age. Rusty Alford presented the four component shear wave rotation that transforms four traces of complicated shear wave splitting reflection seismic into easy to comprehend two traces, the pure mode S1, S1 reflection data and the pure mode S2, S2. So that's the fast shear wave and the slow shear wave. For this, he received the Kaufman Gold Medal as, as was rightly due. Amico management at this time stated that the finding of shear wave splitting or shear wave by refringence in 
um, oil and gas operations was so monumental that it needed an industry to develop, not a company. They have been proven right, in my opinion. ExxonMobil also gave two papers. So it wasn't, uh, wasn't just Amoco saying, hey, look what we see. ExxonMobil did stand up and say, we, we recorded shearway splitting too. And then Stuart Crampen, the original anisotropist, also spoke. So the shearwave splitting is now routinely recorded in the borehole and for the near borehole environment. Um, they, the cross-dipole shearwave sonic measures the shearwave splitting in the borehole. Also in DSPs, shearwave splitting is routinely recorded, as well as key vibrator source shearwaves. Bob Hardage has been correctly pointing out that this occurs and we need to look at it, we need to take advantage of it, and um, I completely agree with him. The second um, date, 1995, uh, is the publication dates of the work from Bluebell Altamont. This is a oil, a gas province in the Uinta Basin. The United States Department of Energy funded a technology demonstration because they wished to obtain better gas production from the naturally fractured tight gas sandstone of the Rocky Mountain Basin. The work we published in 1995 from Bluebell Altamont used nine component 2D reflection seismic, and, two com and we had two nine component DSPs. Nine component means that we had three sources, P, S, H, S, V, into three component receivers. So we, we recorded nine component 2D reflection seismic. The tie point was the critically important piece of information because at the tie point, we measured the shear wave by refringence, the shear wave splitting. And then we also measured the PP AVO gradient changing by asthma. We published that the contrast in the shear wave by refringence is proportional to the AVO gradient change by asthma. So the rocks with one set of vertical aligned fractures support two differently polarized, vertically propagating shear waves. One of the shear waves is C44, the elastic modulus C55 is the other shear wave, and the difference in the shear velocities is related to the number of fractures per wavelength. At least that's our current understanding. This Bluebell Altamont data set continues to provide the industry with more information. I keep turning back to it to look at what I didn't understand back then, but now I feel that I do understand. It's a, a really good lesson for up-and-coming geoscientists to to go back to stuff they started and who, and who knows what new thing you're going to see. And and exactly. speaking yeah, and speaking mm -hmm. of new things, you know, moving to this present, you've got a paper published with Bill Goodway that got into a more controversial area. What makes your findings in this particular paper controversial? The controversy arises from the two perceptions of the nature of the azimuthal variation of the near angle reflection seismic data. Everyone accepts that the far offset change by azimuth, and so that gives us a gradient, AVO gradient change by azimuth. Everybody's on board with that, that's great. So now I want to talk about the near angle. Near angle is 5 degrees to 15 degree angle of incidence. So the two perceptions are, one, it changes, the near angles change azimuthally. 
in a, with a magnitude equal to or greater than the far offset angle. And then that's one perception. The other perception is that the maximum variation of the azimuthal amplitudes occurs at the far angles and steadily reduces with consequently little variation at the near angle. This is the Ruger approximation. Andreas Ruger and Ilya Spankin published equations where only the far offset or far angle amplitudes change by azimuth. However, in the last 25 years, we've looked at a whole lot of data and people need to look at their own data because the near angle amplitudes are changing azimuthally. We've seen the cosine two theta variation. That's the classic 90 degree difference between fracture parallel and fracture perpendicular. The magnitude of the near angle amplitude variation can equal or exceed the azimuthal variations of the far angle. So I say, look at your own field data and make your own determination. I also say that the azimuthal variation of the near angle amplitudes is related to the effective porosity or the effective sense porosity. And this effective porosity changes by azimuth. The consequence is that you get azimuthal P impedance as measured by the 5 to 15 degree angles of incidence. Leon and I both see that azimuthal delta may be playing a role in this phenomenon. So there is plenty of opportunity for further investigations and further publications and further light shed on this topic. Now, looking at the future, one thing that struck me is that you say all explorationists are incurable optimists. What makes you optimistic about the future of this topic? Oil companies rightly spend huge sums of money on 3D seismic acquisition in order to learn of the subsurface prior to drilling. Why would anyone want to drill blind? And so if people will just look at their reflection seismic data, the data will speak for itself. So the bottom line is my optimism arises from the knowledge that physics, geology, and math control the reflection signal in of itself. However, we humans do have specific equipment to measure and record and process these reflections. So we humans obviously need to understand the nature of how we record data and so remove in processing as best we can what is not related to the geology. But my, but my point is the data will speak for itself. You just have to look at it and you have to use as few preconceived you know, notions as possible. Who at first reading the description of your upcoming tour may not realize that this talk, this lecture is for them? That's a great question. I really chuckled when I read this because the answer leaped to my mind. It's all the persons who think, ugh, anisotropy. That is too complicated. I don't want to go there. I don't need to go there because I'm not going to understand. I think I should have entitled the lecture Anisotropy Without Tears. <laughs> but <laughs> so this, this, I'm, I'm, I want to have the people who come to the lecture to leave with a comfortable feeling that, hey, anisotropy is, is not too complicated. It's clearly understandable. And, and like it's, it's not our enemy, it's actually our friend. 
you know, you've, you've had a long and storied career in geophysics, winning many awards through the SEG among other places and, and have shared your research and expertise many times throughout the years. For someone that has had the privilege of hearing you speak, how does this lecture further your past research and your past lectures? This talk carries forward from the 30 years of working in anisotropy. It's sort of like a fruition and, and, and more keeps being harvested. And the reason, the reason that more keeps coming is that our industry keeps learning new things. And that's because we keep shooting data. We keep processing the data and interpreting it and then publishing it. So all the important insights that I've ever had were based upon what the data were telling me. Of course, I, I use corroboration or calibration data or support data, like production data or uh, core data, wireline log data, VSP, um, interference data, in-situ stress measurements. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of, like microseismic. There are all sorts of data that are supplemental and complementary and add information. They add value. So it's a, it's a team effort that the, the engineers, the geologists, geophysicists, petrophysicists, and the microseismic. We all, we're all working together. You mentioned this briefly in the question before with uh, the idea of anisotropy without tears. Uh, but what additionally do you hope will be some of the takeaways for attendees of your talk? Well, the, the takeaway I hope that will occur is the person will think, I'll go home and look closely at my data. Do I see what she is talking about? I mean, if that's, if that's what happens, that will be wonderful. Just go home. I'll be inspired to go home and just look and see what their data say. What do you hope to gain from this tour? I hope to gain a very vocal body of geophysicists who will stand up at public conferences and say, I've looked at my azimuthal data, and this is what I see. Click, 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 show the slides. And then they'll say, I've tied it to my calibration and support data, production data, interference, in-situ stress, cores, et cetera. And this is what, this is what the, the data and the support data say click, 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 click. So they stand up and they talk. They publish. So please finish this sentence. If azimuthal PP seismic measurements reached its full potential, it could... Yes, I really like that question. Thank you for <laughs> asking it. Um, so here we go. If azimuthal PP seismic measurements reached their full potential, our world could be changed. As useful as in-situ stress and natural fractures are for oil and gas, along with better image 3D data sets, even more useful are azimuthal PP seismic measurements at plate boundary. Plate boundaries are where stress and fracture populations change with time as the plates move. As you know, when the in-situ stress exceeds the strength of the rock, the rock will break. The largest of these events are called earthquakes. So, the monitoring of the rock mass as stress increases will become possible and even expected and even routine. I, I think we will look back upon the days when we didn't do this and wonder, what were those people thinking? I, I have a, a couple questions to end on that mm -hmm. we our audience kind of ranges from students all the way to, to late professionals and retired 
retired geophysicist. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you span numerous geoscientific organizations, you know, not just SEG and have, you know, been honored, as I mentioned, several times within the SEG alone. What one piece of advice would you offer someone that would like to succeed in your field? That's a great question. Thank you for bringing that out. I would say to, to be diligent in data analysis and then to write it up and then to publish. And then to be diligent in data analysis these days, of course, means knowing acquisition, processing, and interpretation. It means talking with the engineers, the geologists, the petrophysicists, microseismics. And so it's a, it is a team effort, but there has to be somebody who, who volunteers to write it up. And you can write it up as an internal company report so that if the company says, oh, I don't want you to publish it now, you can wait two years or four years or six years and then ask again. And if you just keep asking persistently and politely, sooner or later, the management will change and they will say, yes, you can publish. So, so I would say if there's one thing that's really helped, well, there's so, there's so many things that have helped me in my career, but publishing was really important. And, and lastly, if you could solve just one mystery as a geoscientist, what would you solve? Ah, well, I have alluded to that. The, 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 the mystery that I would, that I would like to solve but I think that all, all geophysicists can solve. It's the mystery of how, how do stresses and fracture populations change at plate boundary? And, right, so that would be, yes, that's not exactly related to oil and gas production, although at plate boundaries there are, there can be um, oil fields or gas fields. And, yes, as the plate tectonically derived stress changes, the fracture population change, and that can impact oil and gas productivity through time. But the important, the important thing to me is that it's the, the joint use. It's everything that the earthquake seismic commit, community knows about, plus all the azimuthal seismic technology that the industry, oil and gas industry knows about that these two get merged and married and then used together. Well, I appreciate your time today for speaking with me. We're excited about your tour starting in almost, uh, almost about a month. So thank you for, you know, deciding and saying yes to us and sharing your expertise to so many around uh, North America. Well, I appreciate your time and, uh, and, and hosting this podcast today and in uh, assembling a list of questions that were to me thought provoking and um, pertinent. So I'm so pleased that the SCG has this program and I, I do hope that all the members will, will take advantage of it. Well, thank you for that. And I hope they take advantage of your upcoming tour as well. And thank you so much, Eloise. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org slash podcast to find all our episodes and learn how you can subscribe for free directly on your phone. Original music by Zach Bridges. 
This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.